Good morning. It's a mistake. We think that probably in the church's infancy that the message was pure and clean, like water that begins on a mountain stream and then gradually became polluted as the years passed. But it's not really true. From the get-go, different versions of the good news were proclaimed, making it hard to know exactly what the gospel was. After Paul left a region, Galatia, which is located in present-day Turkey, after he left there, Jerusalem-based missionaries arrived. And they claimed that since they come from Jerusalem, where Jesus was, that they had first-hand awareness of the gospel. And what they claimed, they accused Paul of taking liberties with the gospel, switching it, distorting it, and giving to the Galatians a version of the gospel that wasn't authentic. Paul writes this letter to address this charge. He insists that his understanding of the gospel didn't come from Jerusalem. It didn't come from talking to the individuals who were in charge of the church that was located there. Paul claims that he received the gospel message directly from Jesus Christ after his resurrection. And for this reason, he details the circumstances of his conversion and and lets them know, you know, and I really wasn't in Jerusalem, and that's what we looked at last week after his conversion. Paul didn't visit Jerusalem for three years. What did he do in the intervening years? What we learned last, one of the things he did is, he says, I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. You see, I don't think he went to Arabia to proclaim the gospel. It was sparsely populated. There's not a real reason you'd go there. There weren't a lot of Romans there. There weren't a lot of Jews there. There weren't a lot of people there. Pretty sparse. So I don't think he went there to to preach the gospel. I think he went there to to understand it. What it says in 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 11. It's in your worship folder. And we're going to read that first, then we're going to come back to look at the text. Trying to establishing a a basis. Look what it says. Paul writes, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory had come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. What is Paul doing? He's talking about two different covenants from two different locations. This is what Mount Sinai looks like in Arabia. So this is where Paul, one of the stops he made in those three years where he was converted. We don't know exactly what he did, but we do know that he visited Arabia. We don't know that he visited this mountain, but not a lot of other stuff there, and it makes a lot of sense that he would have. And perhaps he goes to this mountain where Moses brought the old covenant, and perhaps Jesus then, in some form, 
told him about the new covenant, about how this new covenant had now replaced the old covenant. Um, as Paul talks about the old covenant inaugurated through Moses on Mount Sinai and the new covenant inaugurated through Jesus Christ on Mount Calvary, he, in this passage, gives some terms of description that are pretty surprising to us. And when he describes this covenant that came here as the ministry of death, the ministry of the service, it's what it ends up affects, death. And he calls it the ministry of condemnation. Now, you can imagine when Paul went from place to place, and he calls the old covenant from Mount Sinai something that inaugurates death and condemnation. He didn't make a lot of friends with first century Jews. Like we can understand that. And then what he ends up doing then, and this confuses, this is, wait a minute, didn't God do this? And that's what we'll talk about a little bit. When he talks about what happened at Mount Calvary, he uses very different terms. Again, it was the ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation, but when he talks about the new covenant, he calls it the ministry of the spirit, not the ministry of death, but the ministry of the spirit, and spirit versus death, and the ministry of righteousness. Paul's first visit to Jerusalem came three years after his conversion, and I think at which time Paul was clarifying these things. His second visit to Jerusalem occurred about 14 years after his conversion. And what he does, in the early church, there was confusion. Was Christianity just another sect of Judaism? What, what differentiated Christianity from Judaism? And because of what Paul did, he ended up clearing the tracks, but it was very difficult. Look what it says. Galatians 2. Verse 1, it's in your worship folder, um, says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation. Jesus told them to go and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, to non-Jews, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised Jews. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles. 
and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. What Paul indicates that when he went to speak to the Jerusalem leaders about 14 years after he was converted, he uh, false brothers were there and they had infiltrating the meeting, they argued that Gentiles who converted to the God of Israel needed to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses. So what they were saying is that Gentiles need to be Jews in order to become children of God. And what Paul understood because of his discussions with Jesus, that was absolutely not true. And Paul is going to go there to argue that Gentiles do not need to become Jews in order to be children of God. The reason he brings Titus along, who was a Jew, is to push the point. And what's going to happen, they heard Paul tell stories about going from place to place and dealing with Gentiles and God proving that he had accepted them by allowing at that time supernatural phenomena. Now, at that time... Supernatural phenomena was a way that God would indicate clearly that he had accepted someone. In our days, supernatural phenomena do not have the same significance. Now, they occur. Supernatural things do happen. At that time, when there's a juncture in salvation history, supernatural phenomena have a very important function. How can you tell if God really accepts somebody or not? Would you agree? People claim to have all kinds of experiences, but how can you know that they're true? So what ends up happening, God provides evidence. At this specific juncture in salvation history, miracles among the Gentiles. So everybody has to look at their head and say, you know what, holy smokes, you know, who would ever have thunk it? They're not obeying the law of Moses, but God accepts them. Look at the things that's happening to them. There's miracles, there's speaking in tongues, there's healings. I can't debate it, can't deny it. God's accepting them. And that's what the Jerusalem apostles end up seeing. They, they hear the stories from Paul. They say, no kidding, he did that. And what happened? And she did what? And he did what? And they end up saying, okay, you know what? This is a little confusing for us. After all, the old covenant has been in place for 1,500 years or so, but it seems that they're not doing the things we were told to do, and yet God's accepting them. And so they stamped Paul's ministry and accepted it. That's what ended up happening. Um, Paul went there because he knew what was at stake. He understood that to bring Gentile believers under the authority of the Mosaic Law, do you remember the way God characterized the covenant from Mount Sinai? And if you weren't surprised by it, you weren't looking. That's the way Paul describes it. And so what Paul understood, that if Gentiles need to become Jews in order to become children of God, they end up being brought into slavery. Um, and Paul understood that the gospel... The old covenant, death and condemnation, has been replaced by new covenant, spirit and righteousness. And that Moses, what Paul understood, for Gentiles, it would be very important to have covenant clarity. 
It would be very important for Gentiles to have covenant clarity with Gentiles. It's very important for us to understand what covenant we live under. That's what Paul fought for. And is there covenant clarity in our day? Yes and no. I don't think so. But what Paul pushed at that time, he said, make sure you understand the covenant that you're under and the covenant that you're not under. We'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, he talks about it. In fact, um, look what it says in Second Corinthians 3.12. It's on the bottom of your page. Um, so Paul says, since therefore we have such a hope, and what he talks about is this hope, this hope that spirit and righteousness have replaced death and condemnation. Because of this hope, Paul says, we're very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Let me explain what that's saying. Um, I think we've done this before. Uh, so what ended up happening when Moses went up on Mount Sinai, he was came down, he was shiny. So he came down, and, and it was just like his face was glowing. And what he did, though, he did this. Now, there's two reasons why he might have done this. Because you might be light-sensitive. And, Paul, whoa, hey, whoa, Paul, Moses, uh, yeah, thanks, Moses. <laughs> because you don't want to get blinded. That's one reason why he might have done it. I don't think that's why he did it. What Paul indicates, the reason he did it, is that his face was dimming. When he was up, it was, you know the way you, the way it is when you put something glow in the dark? Glow in the dark, then you put it up to the light, then you turn the light off, and holy smokes, it's really bright, but then over time, it gets less and less and less bright. That's what was happening to Moses' face. So, Moses didn't know what else to do, I'm not sure, but anyway, what he did was this. So now, if my face is glowing, and I do this, you can't see that it's dimming, can you? And that's what Paul indicates what was happening. But Moses then, I don't think he's being deliberately deceptive, but what he didn't know, and Paul came to understand, Moses' face was supposed to dim. That's a reflection of the covenant that brought was brought through him because it wasn't supposed to last. That's why his face dimmed. It was God's way of expressing that this was supposed to be temporary. How can I say it's temporary? Well, if, if Moses had done this, you would have seen, wait a minute, his face is getting dimmer. And the point is, that's because the covenant that he inaugurates is supposed to dissipate. Why? So it can be replaced by another. This one. That's what Paul understood. Um, he ends up saying, but their minds were hardened. They didn't see it, that it was temporary. Listen to what it says. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Do you understand what he's saying at that time? When the Old Testament or the Old Covenant was read, the same veil remains. And what is the point? Because they are listening to this covenant and saying, that's still the way God operates. 
they didn't see that it was supposed to dissipate, to disappear. It was as if a veil is keeping them from seeing that it was supplanted by a different covenant. Of course, that veil doesn't exist today. It does exist today. When we believe that God still operates by Mount Sinai prescriptions. Now, does God want us to keep the Ten Commandments? Yes, he does. Does he bless us for obeying the commandments and curse us for disobeying? No. We operate according to a different covenant. And it's important to be clear. Listen to me. Because what you believe is what defines you as a Christian or not a Christian. What covenant are we under? The one from Mount Sinai? Or the one from Mount Calvary? You say, ah, this is, we really don't need to know. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. It's not an amalgam. It's not a, a, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. We have to be clear. That's what Paul fought for. Um, he says, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. You know what happens to a Christian? You know what a Christian is? One who understands that this has happened. Wait a minute. We're not under the old covenant anymore. You know what that makes you if you believe that? You know what that makes you? If you believe that we're not under the old covenant anymore? That makes you a Christian. That's what a Christian is. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord... The veil is taken away. It's, that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what Paul is indicating. And again, it's, he says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Paul understands that Christianity is based upon, reliant upon, founded upon, driven by, fueled by, powered by, made by covenant clarity. It's essential. Being a Christian means believing that the Old Covenant was temporary, and it means believing that the Old Covenant has been replaced by the New. Paul will have more to say about this in his letter, and he will tell us about the implications, and we'll talk about it as we go through the letter. I want to raise a question, though, and talk about it just a little bit. And we'll come back to New Covenant, but if you're hearing, a question could very well rise what about the Jews? I mean, they were given a temporary covenant. They were given something that doesn't last. And their hearts are hardened. Why would God do that? It's something like planned obsolescence. You know what planned obsolescence is? When you sell somebody something and you know it's going to wear out. And it's kind of being deceitful. You know, sometimes when you do it, that's what they say with cars, you sell somebody a car and then things are going to wear out in a car and then you have to go back and get them fixed and and the things are supposed to wear down in a car. They didn't wear down as much. I was talking to a, a service person and it, he said it used to be, and some of us who were older, you could fix parts. <laughs> a supply, it, now I know that I don't, I know I'm, this is ancient history, but you could actually fix a part. And today, you don't fix parts. There's modules that come out of a car. You take a module out, cost a thousand bucks, and then they put the module in. 
you know, modules out, modules in. You can't fix the module. You know, it's all this. You know, so again, so that's what are we talking about? Modules. We're not talking about modules. Okay, you can tell that I just went to talk about getting your car fixed. Um, <laughs> modules. Um, planned obsolescence. Um, why would God sell somebody a temporary product? Good question. Why would God bring show up on this mountain and give the Israelites something temporary? That's what Paul is indicating happened. Um, let's look at that a little bit. What we say in the Bible, God initially, remember when he ran into Abraham? Well, he didn't run into Abraham. He stopped him in his tracks. Here's what he said to Abraham. And it's not in your worship folder. Just listen. Basically, what he does, he promises, Abraham, you're going to be the father of not a nation, but many nations. And I'm going to bless the earth through you. Okay? So what's going to happen, Abraham? I am revealing myself to you and through you. I'm going to pick you, and you are going to be a channel of blessing to the world. That's what he said. Here's what God said to him. Go from your country, Abraham, and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. What he's saying to Abraham, here's what I want you to do. You're going to leave us and join them. There's your country You don't get to stay in your country. You don't get to stay with those you consider to be us. I am taking you from us, those you're comfortable with, and sending you to them. Okay. I I wonder if he really understood what was being said. Anyways, God goes on, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and will... And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For God to channel grace through Jews to Gentiles is not going to be fun. Again, that's not stipulated. It's Jesus, the king of the Jews, who is the one who both communicated and modeled what would be involved. And this is what Jesus said in John 12, 24. It's in your worship folder halfway down the sheet. Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I went to take with apple seed. I don't have one. I had an apple seed, little. It's just a seed. So, And if I take this seed and I put it on this podium and I leave it there, it's going to remain a seed. Nothing's going to happen. What happens though if I put it in the ground? You know what happens when a seed puts in the ground? The husk of it deteriorates, becomes corrupted, it dies. And what is inside the seed promotes a tree with numerous seeds. And so what Jesus is indicating, you know where life comes from? Death. And so, for Jews in general, and their king in particular, to bring life to Gentiles, what will need to happen to Israel? 
it will need to die. So that out of their death, life will come. And that's what Jesus then does as the king of the Jews. But what happened to Jesus also happened to the Jews. The first tier of Jews have a very difficult task. In order to channel salvation to us, they will suffer. In order to channel life to us, they will die. It will seem as if God has washed his hand of them. It is not true. That's the way God channels life. Grace isn't merely unmerited favor. That's a definition of grace. You know what grace is? It's unmerited favor extended to them by us. So what ends up happening then, evangelism in our day, and again, it is what it is, what we tell people and we want to have them become Christians and they are living a life that's not a Christian life. We say, come join us. Leave them. Leave them. And join us. Join us. And I'm not blowing, just, that's what it is. You know what God is telling the first century Jews? Leave us and join them. Who's them? Us, Gentiles. What he did and what happened, he dispatched this first generation of Jewish Christians into the Gentile world, into the world of them. And because he did, we know the message. Um, that's Paul understands the Gentiles didn't need to join us Jews. Paul understood that better than anyone at his time. And this is why he's in Jerusalem fighting, because they don't need to become like us. That's the point. God is sending us to them to give them a gift. What about our gift? Well, we kind of get it, but now it's not. Now God's sending some of us out with a gift. God is not done with the Israelites, by the way. God doesn't choose somebody and wipe his hands of them. I'm sorry. Sorry, you blew it. That's not the way it is. God is not like that. God does not choose somebody and then let that person fall. Paul understood that the Jews didn't need to become, Gentiles didn't need to become Jews in order to become children of God. This is why he fought for in Jerusalem 14 years after his conversion, just to make sure, and because he did, we understand what the good news is. Because Paul and Jesus and a crew of children of Israel moved from their community into a place that wasn't there so that we would get the message. You say, Mike, why are we making this point? So, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's because of something that happened afterwards. It's a shame.
how quickly the church became anti-Semitic. I understand that it was confusing. Tertullian lived in the second century. Decent guy. Just didn't see it, though. Had a particularly intense personal dislike toward the Jews. He argued that the Gentiles had been chosen by God to replace the Jews because Gentiles were worthier and more honorable. Have we been chosen because we are worthier and more honorable than Jews? No! Fourth century church leaders were even more hostile. Again, these people were... They were ignorant, and we wouldn't have done any better. So I'm not, I'm not blowing them up. I'm just saying what they represent is just so twisted. John Chrysostom went on to say that because Jews rejected the Christian God in human flesh, they deserve to be killed. It says that they grew fit for slaughter. He claimed that Jesus was speaking about Jews when he said, As for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them before me. They said he was talking about Jews when he said that. About the same time, Augustine, again, these are... These are guys that had dark sides. They had bright sides. You know, they were taking a message and bringing clarity, and they didn't see everything at once. So I'm not, I'm not claiming that we would be any better, just pointing something out. Augustine argued that the Jews should be left alive and suffering as a perpetual reminder of their murder of Christ. It was, this is within two to three to four hundred years. It just, it was like a fire. And then Martin Luther, who did so much to clarify the gospel, wrote a treatise on Jews and their lies and said that we are at fault in not slaying them. Again, we can sit from where we are and look back and say, oh boy, what a butthead. What he believed is wrong, but yet he did so much to bring us out of the dark ages. But yet, on this point, he was really off. Martin Luther's understanding of grace was profound. In his final sermon shortly before his death, though, uh, he ends up saying, we want to treat them with Christian love and to pray for them. That's pretty good. So that they might become converted and would receive the Lord. Um, again, there's in this writing, it's not hard to understand why the Holocaust happened. You know what this feels like to me? Again, I remember what happened on D-Day. American and British. And Canadian forces went to Normandy and because of what they did there, because of the sacrifice, liberated Europe. That was, that was the beginning of the end of the Third Reich. 
That's what our older brothers, the Jews, did for us. And imagine the French becoming anti-American and anti-British and anti-Canadian when American and British and Canadian blood bathed the beach at Normandy in order that the French might be liberated. That's what our older brothers, the Jews, did. And someday God will, he's not done with them. Our time will come to a close and God will put a stop sign on Gentiles entering the family of God. And at that point, he will, I don't know what it looks like, wave our older brothers in. And I'll tell you what, Devin, come on up. Father, thank you that you are um, mighty to save. Thank you for the plan of salvation. At some point we'll look back and we will be able to see it in its entirety on the other side and we will marvel. Thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen.